Daniel, for that introduction. I also want to thank uh, the Masters University Bible Department for allowing me this opportunity to preach today. Um, well, when I tell people I go to Masters University, I tell them it's a small school. It's much different from this angle. <laughs> but uh, please, op- please open up with me to Isaiah 1. Now, before I start today, I want to share with you some of the goals that I have for the sermon. First is that for those of you who are Christians, that you'll be not only encouraged by this message, um, but you'd also be motivated um, and have the passion to proclaim the gospel to your friends, family, and even the strangers on the street. Uh, Secondly is that for those of you who might be nominal Christians, uh, that you would repent of your sins and that you would start to live a life in obedience to God. Uh, Third is for anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ, uh, that you would believe in him. Um, I have a three-point sermon outline. Verses 1 through 9 can be titled, I am not righteous. Verses 10 to 15 is, I cannot hide my sin. And verses 16 to 20, I am still required to be righteous. Uh, Please bow your head and pray with me before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ for his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection, and his intercession for believers. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to speak your word accurately. I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause people to love you more after hearing your word, um, and he would also cause people to repent from their sins. And Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first section of the sermon is titled, I Am Not Righteous. Uh, Please follow along with me in Isaiah 1, 1 through 9. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A lost sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. These opening verses of Isaiah immediately place the context of the book as one of judgment. Judgment because of unrepentant sin. And rebellion against God. In verse 2, 
the call for the heavens and earth to listen is meant to remind Israel that God promised there, there would be punishment if they did not obey him. This judgment in Isaiah 1 is referring to the curses that God promised would come if Israel, for Israel's continual breaking of the Mosaic Covenant, which if you go back and you read Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 32, you'll see many similarities in the language here in Isaiah 1. This is no accident that Isaiah uses this language from Deuteronomy. And when you read in verse 2, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, this language is taking the readers directly back to the context of Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 32. Perhaps to better understand this, how many of you uh, have been listening to class to a professor, and during the lecture at some point, he'll bang his hand on the table, bang his feet on the floor to draw your attention to a certain point of the lecture so that you won't forget it. Maybe you've had Dr. Varner in Old Testament survey, and he'll get on a table, lay on it, to demonstrate to you guys that you can, if you go to Israel, you can float in the Dead Sea. <laughs> and then he'll probably follow that demonstration with saying something like, it's not if you, it's when you. In, in the same way, in the same way Isaiah wants Israel to remember the words that God had said in Deuteronomy that if they continue to rebel against him, that he would punish them for their sin. So this verse in verse 2 has set the tone for the entire chapter. Uh, what we'll read next is that same connection we just saw in Deuteronomy, that rebellion against God will result in punishment. Uh, we read in verse 2, sons I have brought up, but they have revolted against me. There's that rebellion. In verse 3, Israel is called less obedient than a donkey, which even though it is a stupid animal, it still obeys its master. There was more hope for a donkey than there was for Israel. In verse 4, they're called a sinful nation, offspring of evildoers, and that they have abandoned the Lord. Verses 5 and 6 reveals the extent of their hopelessness. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head. And in verses 7 to 9 reminds Israel of God's attempt to punish them in order to bring out obedience and repentance because he loves them. He doesn't want them to be punished. Israel has been punished by God before, but God had mercy on them so they wouldn't be exiled. This was to give them an opportunity to repent, which if you read in the book of Judges, there was a continual cycle of God warning Israel to repent. Israel still disobeying. God then judging Israel by letting a nation attack them. Then Israel repenting and God raising up a judge to deliver them. And this cycle continued and it continued. But as verse 5 points out, that Israel has stopped responding in repentance to God's discipline. Israel had a sin problem has a sin problem. They cannot stop sinning. What does this section teach us about God and about ourselves and our relationship to God? After reading this section, you might be tempted to think that this has no application to today because we are not all Israel. 
But Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mankind is utterly incapable of obeying God. Mankind is not righteous and cannot become righteous on their own. Why is this such a bad thing? Because God is holy. Leviticus 20, 26 says, I'll read it for you. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Let's briefly look at a couple passages that exalt the holiness of our God. Please turn with me to Psalm 97, 1 to 6. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. There is none like our God. No one else is surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. No one else is righteous like he is. He can devour his enemies in a moment. His greatness causes the world to tremble. Let's also look at another verse in Isaiah 45, 18 and 19. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it, he established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. This is what the Lord says. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Truly, no one is like our God. He is absolutely holy. And this is problematic, because as we just read, that mankind is not holy. My question for you is how do you respond when you read about God's anger for sin? So please think about that question as we transition to the next sermon point, which is that we cannot hide our sin from God. Please read with me in Isaiah 1, 10 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, a calling of assemblies. 
I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts that have become a burden to me. I am wary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. What is happening in these verses? In verse 11, we see Israel performing multiple sacrifices to God. In verse 14, they're holding festivals, they're showing up to their festivals, and in verse 15, they even lifted their hands up in prayer to God. Aren't these things good? Yes, they are good. But they do not hide sin, and they do not take away sin. So God is still angry with them. Verse 13 says, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. We just read earlier that God is holy, and he cannot and will not be associated with sinners. We cannot mix our relationship with God and sin. Even though they tried to hide their sin behind these external religious activities, they were still held accountable for the charges brought against them in the first nine verses of Isaiah. Israel knew that continuing in the sin was wrong. So what they did was, they did what every person does who loves their sin. They tried to hide it. They thought that if they multiplied their sacrifices to God, and if they showed up to every festival, if they lifted their hands to God in prayer, that they could hide their sin and be able to keep their sin. They tried to play hide-and-seek with God, and God won. He found them. Now, Israel was not the first to try and hide from God. If you could think back to me with the book of Genesis, to the book of Genesis, remember that it was Adam and Eve who were the first sinners who tried to hide from God. They couldn't hide from God. God found them, and God punished them. A punishment that has effects thousands of years later and for many of the rest of eternity. Adam and Eve could not hide their sin from God. Israel could not hide their sin from God. My brothers and sisters, you cannot hide your sin from God either. He sees it. Do you remember the parable of the publican and a tax collector in Luke 18? The publican lists what he's not. He says, I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a tax collector. And then he lists in what he does. That he fasts twice a week. And he pays tithes. He lists what his faith is in, in his works, and what he does, what he does, who he's not, who he thinks he is. Jesus reveals that this claim to self-righteousness does not hide our sin. It's still there. It was not the self-righteous publican who walked away justified. It was the repentant tax collector who confessed his sins to the Lord. So what we have read so far in Isaiah is that God has revealed mankind's sin, mankind's inability to do good, and mankind's inability to hide their sin. And next we read the third sermon point. The only solution is to have our sin removed. Follow along with me in Isaiah 1, 16 to 20 as we come to the final sermon point. 
that even though we are completely sinful and unable to hide our sins, we are still required to be righteous. Now, verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now if we have verses 5 to 6 in mind, we might be confused. Verses 5 and 6 says that the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, we're completely helpless on our own. And then we read in 16 and 17 that we must have evil removed from us, that we must do good, we must, must be clean. We are reading that we must have our sins removed. But we are also reading that we are completely sinful and unable to do that. And how can we have our sins removed? Isaiah answers this in two chapters, one in six and the other in chapter 53. If you want to turn to chapter six with me, in chapter six, Isaiah sees a vision when he's in the presence of the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And he cries out in fear and dread because he sees the great king in all of his glory and majesty. He understands God's holiness and he is fully aware of his sin and the need for that sin to be removed. Then in verses six to seven, Isaiah says, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. God has provided for the forgiveness of sins, and it's only from the altar of forgiveness. Chapter 53 of Isaiah explains this altar of forgiveness for us. Um, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, I'm going to read for you guys verses chapter 53, 10 through 12. 10 through 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities therefore i will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors isaiah 53 prophesied that there would be a suffering servant who would die for the sin of his people and would not stay dead, but he would live after he dies. We know that this suffering servant is Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus Christ came into the world. That Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He came into the world born of a virgin. He lived righteously. He lived faithfully. He lived perfectly. And he was perfect. He is perfect. He then died for the sins to pay the punishment for the sins of those who believe in him. And then he was resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. He is the only one who can take away sin. He is the only one who can make filthy sinners such as me and you clean. He didn't stop there. He not only forgives sin if you believe in him, but he promises life to those who do believe in him. And that life is eternal life. God promises that as he raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise up from the dead those who believe in him. This is the gospel in Isaiah, and it is the same gospel that we read in the New Testament, and it's a beautiful gospel. Um, at the beginning of the sermon, I listed a few goals I had. Um, first, if you're listening today, and you do believe in Christ, and you are living in a life of obedience to him, I hope you're encouraged by these words, and I hope that this message of forgiveness, if you think, if you know of friends, uh, family, strangers on the street, I pray that you would be compelled and motivated to share this gospel with them. Secondly, for the person who uh, calls him or herself a Christian, um, but does, doesn't think that they have to repent of their sins, and they try to hide their sin um, with different excuses. Please confess your sins to God and repent. 1 John 1, 8-9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lastly, for the person who does not believe in these things, my plea is for you to believe in Christ. Believe that he is God. He came into the world and lived perfectly and obediently and that he died for the sins of those who believe in him and that he did not stay dead, but he resurrected and ascended to sit at God's right hand in heaven. If you believe that Christ has done these things, then Christ has a promise for you that he will give you life that starts right now. He promises not only that you will have life in heaven for eternity, but he will give you life that starts right now, a life that is characterized by righteousness and obedience to God. Um, I'm going to close this in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you for this gospel message, Lord, that you did not leave us in darkness, Lord, but because of your great love, you have made yourself known to us, Lord, through your son, Jesus Christ. Um, I pray, Lord, for, for anyone here who does not believe. I pray that they would believe in you, Lord, and enjoy the life that you have for them. We pray these things in your son, Jesus Christ.